Well, this morning uh, is the last Sunday in our sermon series, The Spirit of the Church, a study through Acts. Um, so last summer, we uh, spent uh, most of the summer going through the first part of the book of Acts, and then this summer, we jumped into the second part of it, and we had full intention of working all the way through the very end, but as we know from the last 18 months, life happens and things get in the way, right? So uh, we're going to be pivoting a little bit, um, but... Uh, throughout this series, uh, we've been asking two primary questions throughout it. The first one being, uh, what is the church? And this felt like a really important question for us to be asking in the midst of COVID and in a time when all of the rhythms and the patterns and practices that we had of church had been taken away from us. And it felt like an important question to ask of like, is church more than just gathering on Sunday morning, singing some songs and hearing a sermon? Or perhaps could the church be something bigger than that? Like the goodness of God being unleashed on the world through the church, the community that's gathered itself around Jesus. The second question that we've been asking, again, either explicitly or implicitly, is what is the role of the Spirit? A few years ago, I had a conversation with someone where they said, well, you know we're Mennonites, we don't believe in the Spirit. They said this a bit tongue-in-cheek, because Mennonites are Orthodox, we believe in the Trinity. However, sometimes in our practice, we don't always emphasize the role of the Spirit. And so that really troubled me. And so uh, some scholars have even referred to the book of Acts as the gospel of the Spirit, because the Spirit emerges as like one of the main characters throughout uh, the story of Acts. And so we wanted to spend some time reflecting on what is the church and what is the role of the Spirit. And so we've done that last summer and up to this point in the summer. We're going to pivot a little bit moving forward, but uh, hopefully this has been a, a meaningful and enlightening uh, series as we've reflected on on these two really important themes in the life of the church. So as we jump into uh, the last week uh, in Acts, let's pause for a word of prayer. Loving God, we are grateful for this chance to be together. Thank you for uh, the gift of technology, um, which brings those of us in person and those of us online together. More than the gift of technology that unites us, we give you thanks for your spirit. Um, that is here among us in person and in our homes, and again is mysteriously, divinely drawing us together, creating one new humanity. God, we're grateful for the gift of your spirit. As we turn to the scriptures now, we acknowledge um, your spirit here among us. We acknowledge the role of your spirit, and we ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Back in the day, I interned at a church in Michigan with a buddy of mine named Kevin. Uh, Kevin and I were, were good friends because we were kindred spirits of sorts. Um, we both had a bit of a rebellious attitude towards the church. When I say a rebellious attitude towards the church, I'm not saying like we got into trouble or like wanted to see the church fail or, any way, or anything like that. Um, the opposite actually couldn't be further from the truth. We had a profound love for the church. And our, our rebellious spirit was a bit more of like a, a, a spirit of reformation, right? We believed that the church could, could be better than what it currently was, and we, we believed that there were better versions of it out there, and we, we, we rebelliously pursued that sort of vision of the church. Um, up to that point, we had spent most of our lives in like fairly traditional, well-established churches that had become a bit of a destination for people. People would leave their homes and drive however many minutes to experience something within a building and then head back to their lives, distant and removed from the church. And we had this growing conviction within us that the church needed to be where the people were. But the problem was, we were interning at a fairly traditional, well-established church of about 1,500 people that had become a destination for all of these people. And so there were these expectations upon us, things like office hours, right? 
And so we would meet our bare minimum of office hours, and then we would get as far out of that building as we possibly could. Now, one of the places that we would spend a significant amount of our time that summer was a coffee shop called The Raven. Now, The Raven was named such because of Edgar Allan Poe's uh, poem, The Raven. So you can already begin to get a little glimpse in your mind of what this place was. It was like bohemian meets hipster in all sorts of beautiful perfection, right? It was part bar, part restaurant, part coffee shop, and the upstairs walls were lined with leather-bound books. And I walked in and said, I am in heaven. (laughs) So we would spend a lot of our time here either working, meeting with students, or just hanging out by ourselves. And on one particular day, we were um, talking with our barista, And uh, somehow conversation got around to the fact that we were here for the summer working. And then she asked the question. Now, eight years removed from this situation and five years in pastoral ministry, I now know to expect a shift in posture when I answer the question, right? But young Sean didn't know how to respond to this question. So she asked the question, what are you doing for work? And we said, oh, we're working at a church. And she immediately went, oh, (laughs) And she responded to us and said, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And again, we didn't know how to respond to this moment, and so I think we like muttered our way through the rest of the conversation, sipping on our coffee awkwardly until we got to the end of the conversation like Lloyd Christmas and Dumb and Dumber and said, well, big gulp say, see you later. And we got in our car and we immediately began to like regroup. And both of us had this urge within us in that conversation to respond to her, probably because of this rebellious spirit, probably because we're shaped by being millennials. But both of us wanted to say, well, neither of us are religious. We're spiritual too, man. Which felt good at the time. But again, now that I look back on that situation, now eight years removed, I realize that there would be a problem with that response from me. And the problem with that response is, I am religious. (laughs) I am deeply religious. And as I look back on that uh, situation, I realize that there was an issue with our barista's comment as well. And the problem is is that she was deeply religious too. I'm deeply religious. She was deeply religious. And oh, by the way, you all are deeply religious. (laughs) We as human beings are deeply religious beings. And there's nothing that we can do to get away from that. Here's what I mean by this. The English word religion uh, comes from the Latin and essentially means something like to bind or unbind, to like latch on to something or to unlatch from something. In his book, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, which, by the way, is just a great title, uh, author David Dark writes, uh, religion is simply a tying together, a question of how we see fit to organize ourselves and our resources, a question we might say of how things have been tied together so far and how they might be tied together differently. A binding, an unbinding, and a binding again. He would go on later to write, a religion is a controlling story. So religion in and of itself is this idea of binding, it's unbinding, it's latching ourselves onto something, it's tying ourselves to something, it's a controlling story that we wrap our lives around that gives shape and meaning to our lives. And see, the reason why we can't escape religion as human beings is because embedded deep within us are these longings, these questions about things like meaning and purpose and value. And because these, these are core needs within us, we will turn to anything that will answer these questions of meaning and purpose and value. And we will bind ourselves to them. We will tie ourselves to them. They will become a controlling story that shapes our lives. So perhaps we could even say that religion in and of itself is just simply an attempt to find meaning and purpose and value in our lives. 
See, this comes up when we have these questions within our lives asking, who am I? What am I about? What am I here for? What's my role? What's my purpose? These are questions of meaning and purpose and value. And all of us, each of us, will pursue answering these questions in various ways. Perhaps we pursue answering these questions through the the pursuit of success, right? Perhaps we uh, pursue answering these questions through the pursuit of, like, being a parent. Or perhaps we pursue uh, uh, answering these questions through the pursuit of, like, activism or do-goodedness, right? Or perhaps we pursue answering these questions through the pursuit of, like, belonging to something bigger than ourselves, but regardless, any, any, uh, any time that we pursue answering these questions through any of these pursuits, it's a religious pursuit because we're trying to find meaning and purpose and value in our lives. And when we find that meaning, that purpose, that value, we will affirm that thing. We will validate that thing. We will praise that thing. We might even say we will worship that thing. So if religion is simply attempting to find meaning, then I think worship can be validating a source of meaning, saying, yes, I get meaning and value and uh, meaning and purpose and value from this, so I'm going to validate it. I'm going to affirm it. I'm going to praise it for all that it gives to me. And while we're talking about religion worship, let's throw in another religious word, and that's the word idol. (laughs) If religion is attempting to find meaning and if worship is validating a source of meaning, then these things tend to be non-tangible, right? They tend to be these mysterious things that we can't see. But we like tangible things, right? And so an idol is taking these invisible sources of meaning and making an image of it, something that we can get our hands on. Becomes an object of our devotion, if you will. So if we're pursuing answering all of these deep questions within us through uh, the pursuit of success, then perhaps an idol for us can become things like a job title or money or a bigger house or a better car, right? If we're pursuing answering all of these questions through the pursuit of being a parent, then uh, how well put together our child is can become an idol. Their GPA, their success in sports can become an idol for us. Or if uh, we're pursuing all of these life's deepest uh, questions through the pursuit of activism, then our next best thing for our city or our community can become an idol. Or if we're pursuing all of these deep, uh, th- these deep questions through uh, belonging and community, then being a Notre Dame fan can even become an idol, all right? We could have easily inserted Ohio State as well, right? But all of these things become like a tangible object of our devotion that we begin to validate as a source of meaning and purpose and value in our life. But the problem is, is that oftentimes these are so much more than just an object of devotion. As theologian Willie James Jennings puts it, idols become misguided divine devotion. That these longings within us are, are, are meant for one thing and one thing only, and that's God's very self. The creator of all things knows the meaning and the purpose and the value that all of us have. And if we direct that energy towards anything else, it becomes misguided divine desires. Uh, Jennings would go on and describe idols this way. He says, the idol is a collective self-deception. We could even just stop there, right? <laughs> it's something that we believe will give us something, and we are deceiving ourselves when we do that. But the idol is a collective self-deception, a point of facilitation where human fantasy and wish circulating around material relations generate distorted hope. We put our, our hope and our longing in some sort of image, hoping that it will give us meaning and purpose and value, and yet we are deceived and it generates distorted hope. Now here's why all of this is important and why all of this matters. 
We're religious beings. <laughs> we worship wherever we find meaning and purpose and value. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are all sorts of things around us, images of things that want to give us meaning and purpose and value. These idols all around us, and they're luring us, they're compelling us, they're beckoning us to affirm them, to validate them, to bind our lives to them and allow them to shape our lives. Now, I think that this is the very scene that Paul finds himself in in Acts 17 as he heads into the city of Athens. So at the beginning of Acts uh, chapter 17, as we looked at last week, Paul enters into the city of Thessalonica. And there's some ruffians there, as the NRSV puts it. And these ruffians want to go after Paul, and they want to, like, beat him up pretty good, right? They want to do what ruffians do, rough him up. And so uh, the, the believers within Thessalonica are like, hey, Paul, you should probably peace out. These people want your life. Head off to the next city. So Paul heads off to the next city. Well, these ruffians follow him to that next city. And the believers there say, Paul, you should probably peace out because these people want to hurt you. And so Paul then heads into the city of Athens. And as he's in Athens, he's waiting for the rest of the believers to come to him. And we're told in Acts 17, starting in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them, the other believers in Athens... He was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, at first glance, we might read this, and we can picture Paul as our grandma when she discovered that we listened to bands like Tupac and Nirvana, right? Like, you can feel the weight of disgust on her face, right? Like, she's wanting to step into this role of morality police, saying, how in the world could you have that in your life? But I don't think that that's at all what Paul is wanting to do here. I don't think Paul cares about being morality police because what Paul is in this moment is a good first century Jew. And as a good first century Jew, he knows the stories, he knows the scriptures of the Jewish people inside and out. And as a good first century Jew, he recognizes that the pursuit of idols, worshiping idols, what we might call idolatry, well, that's, that's the root cause of the mess that we find ourselves in. See, Paul recognizes that if we pursue finding meaning and purpose and value in anything other than Yahweh's very self, will lead to all sorts of destructive ends. Because Paul knows where this story goes. The story begins with getting kicked out of Eden. And then that story leads to eventually being enslaved in Egypt. It leads to eventually wandering in the desert. It eventually leads to a dysfunctional monarchy. And it ultimately ends in the experience of exile being forcibly and violently removed from your land. Paul walks into a city of people trying to find meaning and purpose and value in all sorts of things. They're wanting to bind themselves to all sorts of different things. And Paul steps in and says, the story doesn't work. <laughs> the story won't give you what you want. The story will only lead to destructive and disastrous ends in your life. And so Paul does what Paul does best. He enters into the city and begins to argue with the people. Both Jews and Greeks in the marketplace now. And he begins to tell them of a better, more beautiful story that they can bind their lives to. He begins to tell them of the story of Jesus, the story of the, the, the way of Jesus, the story of the kingdom of God, and the story of resurrection. A story that they can bind their lives to and find the meaning and purpose and value that they've been longing for their entire life. Now, some were told were a bit intrigued by this. And so they invite Paul to the Areopagus, which was essentially like a big outdoor amphitheater where uh, the Athenians would gather and discuss these sorts of heady intellectual sorts of things. And Paul stands before them and he says to them, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went throughout the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, 
to an unknown God. It's interesting, as, as Paul stands before the Athenians here, he begins by um, stepping onto some sort of like shared common ground. He says, I recognize this religious impulse within you. I recognize that deep within us, we have a longing for meaning and purpose and value. I recognize that all of us want to bind our lives to something bigger than ourselves. But then you can almost feel the heartache of Paul as he says, and then I found an altar to an unknown God. Almost as if in your pursuit of wanting to bind your life to something bigger than yourself, you've bound it to something unknown. In wanting to find meaning and purpose and value in your life, you've essentially blindfolded yourself and just reached out to whatever you could grab and tied your life to it and trust that it will lead you somewhere. But I'm telling you, that will lead to destructive and disastrous ends. And so Paul then proclaims to them, what therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you this. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth. You have this impulse within you. You have these desires, these longings for meaning and purpose and value. But you're not going to find it by being blindfolded and reaching out and grabbing for whatever. The only way that you'll have all of these longings answered is if you reorient your life and bind yourself now to the God who created all things. This is the God who created you, who gave these, meanings, these longings for meaning and purpose and value in your life. And only by binding ourselves to him, will, to, to this God, will all of these meanings and purpose and values be found. And Paul invites them all then to begin to bind their lives, not to an unknown God, but to the God who created heaven and earth. Now here's why I think all of this is important. Um, both for the, the Greeks some 2,000 years ago now and for us sitting on 3rd Street in, 20, in 2021. And that is because I, I think Paul realized something about religion, about worship, about idols. And I think that's um, the reality that if we're not careful, um, objects of our worship can objectify us. Meaning like the things that we choose to bind our lives to, if we're not careful, can begin to take advantage of us in ways that we don't recognize. If we're not careful, the things that we bind our lives to can begin uh, to uh, take advantage of us and shape us in all sorts of ways that we don't understand. That whatever we bind our lives to, we will eventually become like. We could essentially say that whatever we worship, we become like, and worship in and of itself is a really, really effective sort of tool. Perhaps we can think about it this way. Um, this is a hydrangea, so I'm told. I'm no uh, plant expert. Um, here is also a second hydrangea. If, you've, if you're not familiar with hydrangeas, we have a big, beautiful one out in front of the church, and late, uh, late spring, early summer, when it's blooming, if there's a strong wind, I can smell it on my porch, and it's like the greatest thing in the world. Recently discovered... Uh, that uh, we have pink hydrangeas, we have blue hydrangeas, there's also white ones and all sorts of variations of pink and purple, right? Fascinating thing, these two plants could have come from the same pack of seeds. Do you know what determines the color of the hydrangea flower? The pH level in the soil, the, the, the acidity within it. So these could be the same plants, but based on whatever they have dug their roots into, the soil that they have put their roots in, the soil that they put their roots in will determine the growth from the plant. Meaning that whatever sort of soil these plants have bound themselves to, 
will determine the growth that happens in their life. And I think the same is true for you and me. That whatever we choose to bind our lives to, to take the roots of our lives, the things that give us nourishment, whatever we choose to bind our roots to will determine the growth and the fruit and the things that we produce in our lives. I think this is what Jesus was getting at when he said a tree is known by its fruit. (laughs) That the fruit must come from a source of life and whatever we have latched on as the source of our life will determine the fruit in our lives. And so Paul uh, heads into Athens and begins to look around and sees all of the objects of the people's worship. And I wonder what would happen if we did the same sort of thing in our life. If we began to walk through the city of our lives, what would the objects of our worship be? See, I think this is an important question, but I think ultimately it's an unnecessary question because I think our lives will show what the objects of our worship are. I think our values, our priorities will, will reveal what the objects of our worship are. So perhaps a better question than this one is the question, are we happy with the trajectory of our lives? Are we happy with the direction in which things are happening? Are we happy with the fruit, the growth that's happening in our lives? Because if the answer to this question is no, then I think at the end of Paul's speech in Athens, he has really good news for us. And that good news is one word. Repent. I know for me, repent was never a good word growing up. (laughs) If you strip away all of the cultural expectations of the word, the word simply means turn. (laughs) Meaning like if you're not happy with the trajectory of your life, Jesus is there offering an invitation to turn. To turn and grab on, to bind ourselves to a better, more beautiful story in the way of Jesus. Meaning that if we're not happy with the trajectory of our lives, if we're not happy with the trajectory where our pursuit of success and money and popularity is taking us, the invitation is to turn. Meaning like if we're not happy with the the trajectory of where our pursuits of like reliving our lives through our children and forcing our hopes and dreams and expectations on them is headed, the invitation of Jesus is to turn. Meaning like if we're not happy with the trajectory of where our pursuits of belonging is taking us, whether that be a political party or figure or any sort of other like group that we orient ourselves to, the invitation of Jesus is to turn. Meaning like if we're not happy with the trajectory of our pursuits, of our worldview, our perspectives, our priorities, the invitation of Jesus is to turn. To turn and to bind ourselves to something new, to something bigger, to something better than ourselves. To bind ourselves to Jesus, the way of Jesus, the kingdom of God, and the story of resurrection. See, we have this impulse within us to, to create these tangible idols of, of where we find our meanings. But part of the good news of Jesus is that we don't have to do that anymore. Because as Paul looks back and reflects on the moment of Jesus, the life of Jesus, he says, that Jesus becomes this image, this idol, if you will, of the invisible God. That Jesus becomes this tangible representation of where we find our meaning and our purpose and our value. And we don't have to look any further than to Jesus to figure out what our meaning and purpose and value is in life. And so if we want to find meaning and purpose and value, all we have to do is look to Jesus and to begin to bind ourselves to him. To bind our lives to Jesus, the way of Jesus, the kingdom of God, and to the story of resurrection, to bind ourselves to something bigger and more beautiful and better than the, 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 the current stories that we bound ourselves to. And in that, I think we'll find all of the meaning and purpose and value that we've been longing for for our, our whole lives. Let's pray. 
Loving God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you um, didn't remain just an invisible God, but that you took on flesh and lived among us, revealed to us some sort of meaning, some sort of purpose, some sort of value in our lives. And we give you thanks for this gracious invitation to turn to unbind from the, the stories that are too small for us and to bind ourselves to something much bigger, something much better, something much more beautiful. That is the lives that you invite us into, into your kingdom. So God, I pray for all of us today as we um, reflect on the objects of our worship, as we reflect on the trajectories of our lives, And God, if there's a a sense of dissatisfaction with that, I pray that we would hear Jesus whispering to us to turn. Spirit, lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us in this journey. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.